so I set up this reaction yesterday, and I was working it up today, and I stepped away from the recrystallization for, like, 30 seconds too long, and the whole thing, like, foamed over. Oh, and no. <laughs> since, you know, we're making these colloidal nanocrystals, you've got, like, the super waxy... It was, like, the super waxy ligand. And so I, like, grabbed the beaker to like try to stop it. And it was so slippery and greasy that it just slipped out of my hand and I dropped it and <laughs> lost everything. Oh, wow. <laughs> Reminds me of pretty much every organic lab I was ever <laughs> trying to complete. <laughs> but I guess, you know, that's why I'm practicing it in advance, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Good point. However, I was, uh, Pleasantly surprised today when um, the bottle of olelamine that I bought uh, was sold as a 100 gram bottle, and yesterday I used like 65 grams of it. So I was bummed that I was only going to be able to do like a smaller batch mm. uh, with the rest of it. But then I actually had another 65, and then still some left over. So it's like maybe buying chemicals it's one of those things where you usually get more than you pay for yeah so that was a nice surprise that sounds like a nice surprise so shout out to sigma aldrich (laughs) yeah for their hanukkah uh (laughs) reagents (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and sigma if you want to sponsor us give me a call (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely here to talk about today well before we talk about anything i just want to welcome everyone to another episode of the geppert mayor gauge the podcast about light matter interaction i'm dugan i'm jay and today we will be talking about nuclear resonance and nuclear resonance spectroscopies yes uh not anymore <laughs> not, originally not nuclear magnetic resonance so funny enough okay this is a gonna be a shorter multiple choice question (laughs) (laughs) so when i first thought we were doing nuclear magnetic resonance i had more bands or more songs that were fitting and then when i realized we were doing nuclear resonance scratch the magnetic I didn't have as many, but I came up with two songs. So number one, there's like so many songs that are called Recoil. Um, mm. But there is a band called Magnetic Dreams, which is kind of a, you know, ethereal kind of sounding, you know, electronic band. And they have both a song called Recoil and Momentum. Oh, and, wow. and, oh, wait, sorry, I've got to go. i got to go to Spotify. I think they have a song called Synchrotron. What? Yeah. Hold on. Who is this band? Wait, Magnetic Dreams, you said? Yeah, they have a, yes. So they have a song called Synchrotron. They have a song called Spectra, Diffraction, Plasmasphere. (laughs) How are we just finding out about this band? I don't know. So, (laughs) Chrono Shift. Oh my God. Yeah. All on this uh, album called Zenith. Okay. Uh, Wait. Oh, my bad. My bad. My bad. I, I've confused things. I've confused things. This is not Magnetic Dreams. This is a band called... Okay. Uh, this is Sheba, Sheba Mason. Again, somebody I'm not familiar with, but I think I think an electronic artist from Japan, I believe. Okay. So presumably this person is, if not a physicist, just really into physics. Seemingly astrophysics, right? Yeah. Yeah, because synchrotron, you know, this this is one thing that a lot of people uh, sort of misunderstand. I guess that uh, calling a an X ray facility uh, a synchrotron 
is shorthand for facility that produces synchrotron radiation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which is why some people always prefer to refer to them as storage rings. And so the synchrotron itself, uh, or a synchrotron, is just an electron that is you know traveling at some velocity and as it's deflected in some direction it emits radiation okay so so it's the synchrotron and the radiation is the synchrotron radiation and so uh, i i didn't realize this until my friend who's an astrophysicist explained this to me that uh yeah just electrons traveling through the void of space that emit radiation are called synchrotrons oh i see okay so yeah but yeah why not Although maybe the, uh, what, what did you say? What else is on here? Um, Spectra. There's microwave even. Uh, but of course, that's very astro astrophysics adjacent. Yeah, I think this is, no, definitely, because also there's parallax. Yeah. Antimatter, supermoon. Quasar, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, okay. But yeah, I mean, why not? I like it. Yeah. I don't know if you had other options, but... Um... No, I mean, I had Recoil by Magnetic Dreams, Momentum by Magnetic Dreams, or any of the songs from Zenith. <laughs> okay. So I actually thought of one, which is maybe a bit too on the nose, but, you know, I guess I was thinking along this direction because Rudolf Mussbauer, of course, is German, um, and so I was thinking of German music, and... Yeah, it occurred to me that radioactivity by Kraftwerk is mm, okay. a good option. I also just really like that song and that album overall. So that that was my thinking. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Great. we'll put we'll put uh, radioactivity and synchrotron and recoil and momentum and chrono shift all on the playlist. <laughs> And some other stuff. Oh, and the wayward granddaughter. Pretty much all of (laughs) (laughs) rehearsing my choir. Yeah, it'll just start with the full (laughs) album rehearsing my choir. Yeah, sounds great. So this is a topic I know basically nothing about. So let's get started with, first of all, what does it, so, so what are the features of uh, materials that are amenable to nuclear resonance spectroscopy? Well, what if we, by way of introduction, uh, why don't I read through this document? You can stop me whenever you have a question. Sure, sounds great. Okay. So, for those of you for whom nuclear spectroscopy or nuclear resonance spectroscopies are uh, relatively new, this is sort of a primer on the methods with a focus on synchrotron-based methods. For several decades after Rudolf Mussbauer first discovered the effect bearing his name in 1958, nuclear resonance spectroscopy remained a fairly niche technique practice only by small communities of solid-state physicists and inorganic chemists, routinely probing only a handful of the 72 nuclei with known Mossbauer transitions, most notably iron-57, and to a lesser extent, tin-119, antimony-121, and europium-151. So then the first question is, well, what is the characteristic of a nucleus that supports a a Mossbauer transition? A Mossbauer transition uh, is essentially just any type of nuclear transition that can be observed via the Mossbauer effect. So I guess I kind of have to back up a little, a little bit. Um, now, if you think way back to our episode on Maria geppert Mayer, where we talked about the nuclear shell model, uh, we talked about the fact that although as chemists were much more comfortable thinking about electron configurations and you know, an Aufbau principle for arranging the electrons in an atom or molecule into their orbitals, 
the same is true for for nuclear particles, so protons and neutrons. And so there are rules that in large part were developed by Maria Geppert Mayer and her co-workers uh, for figuring out how those particles fill these these shells and then uh, how you know different magic numbers correspond to closed shell configurations, how the total numbers of particles can be counted to figure out uh, the parity of the nucleus and its overall nuclear spin. And so a uh, nuclear transition is just one in which you move one of these particles to a higher lying shell, uh, which mm-hmm. is totally analogous to moving an electron from you know some orbital to a higher lying orbital. So that's all we're talking about here. And to say that a nucleus is must power active essentially just means that there's a nuclear transition that you know has been able to be measured, uh, and more specifically, can be measured by the Musbauer effect. And the Musbauer effect refers to the fact that by having nuclei in the solid state, you can get around this problem of the fact that the resonant line width of a nuclear transition is much, much, much narrower than the nuclear recoil energy that you would expect when the nucleus absorbs a photon with that resonant energy. And so when the nucleus is embedded in a solid, the effective mass is going to be much, much, much greater uh, because it's the mass of the lattice rather than the mass of the individual absorber. And so it allows you to have uh, zero phonon excitation, zero recoil, and the fraction of absorption events uh, that correspond to these zero phonon events is what gives you the recoil-free fraction, also known as the Lamb-Mosbauer factor. Uh, so in other words, if you were to, to calculate the absorption cross-section for this nuclear transition, how much would you then have to attenuate that ideal cross-section by to get the actual absorbance through a particular material? And that amount of attenuation is directly related to how soft the lattice is. Okay. So now we have these conditions that need to be met. We need to have uh, a nuclear transition, and it needs to be one that we can measure using the Mossbauer effect, again, by embedding this nucleus in a solid and measuring its resonant absorption of gamma radiation from some source. Okay. Can I ask another question about the nuclear shell model? Of course. I, I, I should say that I don't really know very much about it. Um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Ask your question. <laughs> That's okay. I've been, I mean, I've been asking sort of the same very basic question since I was a graduate student to different people, and no one's ever really given me a, a, an answer that I have been satisfied with. So <laughs> we might be in the same place today. So, okay. The electron shell model, I can get that for an atom, and I basically need a couple of ingredients. Those ingredients are basically the kinetic energy of the electron, which the kinetic energy operator for the for an atom gives rise to these different angular momentum states. And then I have the central potential of the Coulomb attraction between the electron and the and the nuclei. Mm-hmm. But it, within the nucleus itself, okay, it's a very different situation. I, ha- I mean, right. I still have Coulomb potential, but I have a strong repulsive potential between protons. And then I have something else binding the whole thing together. <laughs> I guess this strong nuclear force, right? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page and it says, okay, well, I can, I can use a harmonic potential to, as like an effective potential between the nucleons. Or I can use this other potential, which is evidently more accurate, this Woods-Saxon potential, Mm -hmm. which still appears to be kind of an effective... Well, no, not appears. It is still an effective potential. What is... What I really want to know, okay, like, if... I can can say pretty, pretty confidently that the sort of fundamental interaction between the charged nucleons is the Coulomb interaction because those things are so small. They're like little, basically little point charges. And I know of functional form for that, but like, what's the functional form for the strong nuclear potential? Like, 
that the thing that counteracts the repulsive interactions that holds the thing together. I've like never seen this. And I'm sure there must be a, there must be a function there. Uh, yeah. I mean, there must be <laughs> what that function is. I have no idea. Okay. Wiki- Wikipedia, like it just, you know, it just takes me to basically like a, st- like a stub, <laughs> you know, I'm not a stub, but it, it, it takes me to, you know, you can go down the rabbit hole and, you know, I see some diagrams that kind of look, you know, Feynman-esque, not really, but kind of, but, but I'll see like a function and I'm just like, someone must know this function, right? Where is right. it? Right. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, that is frustrating because like you're used to thinking of like electrostatic force or gravitational force. Like these have very, very simple forms. Mm-hmm. So we should be able to write down something for, for this force. I, I have, I don't know. <clears throat> I bet one of our listeners will know. So. Yeah, if you do know, let us know. Yeah. And then maybe come on the show and talk to us about nuclear physics because this is very much a blind spot for me that I've been meaning to, you know, pick up a book on and teach myself for over a decade at this point. I just never have gotten around to it. I remember people talking about nuclear physics at at a, at a, uh, a PSD happy hour when I was in graduate school. And so I, I asked them the same question. And they're like, oh, well, it's strange. And I was like, aha, good joke. I get it. But like, (laughs) tell me. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard of quarks. (laughs) Tell me, what's the... (laughs) That's annoying. (laughs) All right, so I'm on the page for just fundamental interactions. Okay. So, you know, you've got electromagnetic and gravitational saying they go as one over R. And then the strong force goes as R which is a little confusing. And apparently there's something called color confinement. And then the weak force goes as one over R times E to the minus something times R. Mm. So the weak force seems the most interesting. Mediated by W and Z bosons. Oh my God. I'm, I'm in way over my head at this point. What have I done? And I think that's, and that's probably the probably a big part of the problem is that I mostly talk to chemists and, and I'm definitely in over my head. But the other thing that I remember, this is just the other thing I, I, because I was like, (laughs) you know, back in graduate school, I was all about like, well, like which RDM do I need? (laughs) (laughs) And I remember at some point, like encountering the fact that within the nucleus, there are like more than, pair interactions like you you can't mm-hmm. you can't you know the cool can't do a two rdm yeah the coulomb potential is really a pair potential right but what's going on inside the nucleus is you know it goes beyond pairs i don't know if it involves like three bodies at a time or more but it goes beyond two so you can't just use a two rdm for the nucleus evidently you you need at least a three rdm and maybe maybe even more i have no idea but i don't I mean, I don't want to say I don't, I don't care about. I mean, I still care about RDMs, but it's not like central right, right. question in my mind anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it has to be more than pairwise because it's the gluon that mediates the interaction between the other two particles, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so wild. <laughs> so, so I, I'll, I'll also say, in addition to that being a little strange that it's hard to find information as as readily as we're used to um, for this sort of thing uh i was trying to figure out in preparation for this show exactly what the nuclear transition for iron 57 is just because iron 57 is the most frequent moss power nucleus that that you encounter and uh yeah so you know i i i knew already that like actual transition that uh you're looking at is going from the spin minus one half to spin minus three half state like okay but i wanted to know what the actual configurations were and i guess you know i shouldn't be too upset about this because i guess yeah we we teach people how to write electron configurations for atoms and ions and then say yeah and then if if you really want to 
know for anything other than like the simplest conjugate organic molecules, you, you have to do a calculation to, to yeah. figure out what, what these electron configurations are going to be. But I was just looking for, you know, is there a, is there an Aufbau process that I can follow for nu- for the nuclear shell model? Presumably there is, right? We have, we yeah. have these magic numbers. We yeah. have the different shells with their angular momenta. And I couldn't find anything. I found one website that will, if you tell tell it how many protons and how many neutrons you want, it will predict the shell configuration for the protons and the neutrons, which I guess fill totally independently, which is interesting, and then oh, yeah. predict the nuclear spin. And it predicted it incorrectly for the ground state of iron 57. Mm-hmm. So, um, so maybe it's just more complicated and from what i've read uh, so it's not, it's not just quantum chemists that incorrectly assign ground states to electron configurations because <laughs> they use something shitty like dft <laughs> well so for, from what i read uh the the nuclear shell model is there there is like this algorithm you can follow that's usually pretty successful at predicting ground state configurations and ground state nuclear spins but yeah much like, you know, we're used to thinking in electron configurations, pretty awful at predicting excited state configurations. So that's fair. Yeah. But then, you know, this website, for whatever reason, is giving me the wrong configuration. Anyway. We got, sorry, I, I really sidetracked you. No, no, that. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's fun to talk about. And now that we've aired all our dirty laundry about how little we know about nuclear <laughs> physics. <laughs> yes. Again, if, if you do know, please let us know. And otherwise, yeah, maybe we should move on to something I actually kind of know a little bit about. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Let's do it. So, in the past, in in years past, uh, Mossberg spectroscopy was essentially limited to iron fifty seven, and then a handful of others, including tin, antimony, and europium isotopes. Uh, this was largely due to a lack of suitable and accessible radioisotope sources for other nuclei, and the low Lamb Mossbauer factor, which is the recoil free fraction I was discussing earlier, uh, for higher energy transitions. So, as you get to, it, it, it's not. It doesn't exactly follow uh, this trend directly, but typically the the heavier isotopes have higher energy transitions. Um, And so a lot of these transitions that uh, there's a lot of literature on are in the low tens of kiloelectron volts. And then the more exotic ones are approaching 100 kiloelectron volts or even higher. And so as you can imagine, the recoil energy, as it gets higher and higher means that your recoil free fractions get lower and lower. It's harder to have sources for these for these gamma rays, and so those nuclei are, are probed less and less frequently. So using synchrotron radiation as a tunable source was first proposed as a solution to the former limitation of a lack of accessible radioisotope sources by Ruby in 1974, and the first report of nuclear excitation using synchrotron radiation followed shortly in 1978. The observation of nuclear Bragg diffraction to produce nanoelectron volt monochromatized beams enabled energy domain Mossbauer spectroscopy experiments using synchrotron Mossbauer sources, while more modest millielectron volt monochromatization facilitated the development of the time domain technique known as nuclear forward scattering. Okay, so ju- I'm gonna I want to pause on this point too because now it's we're abundantly clear about multiple times in the show. I don't do experiments or make measurements, but nano electron volt width seems very, very small to me. Is this, are, are there other types of spectroscopy where this like level of source line width is required or is, or is even achieved? Like this seems exceptional to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess th- this is a, a great way to kind of tie into, tie into our last episode, right? So, 
you know, it, on the nano electron volt scale, you are, you are, you know, on the scale of, you know, like a hundred megahertz or so. Okay. So this okay. is relevant to rotational transitions or even lower frequencies. So like radio frequencies, um, for, for NMR. So, you know, I guess not that we're trying to talk about NMR today, but, um, yeah, so it is, it is very, very, very narrow. The thing that really sets it apart from rotational or, you know, other microwave spectroscopies is that you're talking about megahertz line widths or, you know, nano electron volt line widths on top of transitions that are typically, let's just say 10 kilo electron volts. Yeah, I guess that was maybe like what I, maybe I should have phrased it that way. Like thinking in terms of something like a quality factor, that seems like an extraordinary, because like the quality factor would be like your ratio of the frequency of the signal to the band the, over the right. bandwidth. Yeah. And yeah. so that would seem in this case to be an extraordinarily huge number. Right. Yeah. So it's what, 10 to the 14, 14 or 13 orders of magnitude. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, truly, tr- truly insane. Um, yeah. And so that, that brings up a lot of issues. So the first of which is this idea of recoil. So, you know, nuclear, transitions had been predicted, calculated, in some case observed. And so uh, for a long time, people were trying to look for, you know, resonant absorption of gamma radiation by nuclei, because, you know, you can predict or you can measure exactly what the nuclear transition energy should be if you can measure the energy of the gamma ray that the decaying isotope emits, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question, whenever anyone tried these measurements in the gas phase since that seemed like you know the practical way to do it is why it was never observed and then the answer of of course is what led to the discovery of the musbar effect that the recoil energy was so much greater than the line width Mm. that it was impossible to have resonant absorption uh in the gas phase Mm. and so then the solution was to embed it in a lattice to over overcome that uh, recoil. And so now you can actually observe these transitions. But now you have a whole new set of challenges, which is how do you get, yeah, parts, you know, one part in 10 to the 13th uh, in terms of your resolution. And so this comes down to sort of the genius of how Musbar spectroscopy with radioisotope sources is done, which is you have a source, and ideally your source is something with a, a half life of maybe like a year or so. Okay. Uh, so the ones for tin and iron that I have are a little under a year, about two thirds of a year, and so that's good because that means they're you know if you get a, a relatively hot source, it's going to be putting out a decent number of gamma rays for you to actually measure in a reasonable amount of time. But of course you you couldn't use that to measure the same transition as the one initially causing the decay of your source. Right. So in other words, our source for iron 57 is cobalt 57 Mm. and the initial decay of cobalt 57, which has this half-life of 272 days is not, the one that emits a gamma ray that oh. is resonant with iron 57 excited state or excitation. It decays through a higher lying excited state of iron 57. And then eventually uh, some fraction makes its way to the first excited state of iron 57. And then that has a lifetime of about a hundred nanoseconds. Mm. And so that will decay via emission of a gamma ray. And that's what actually gets absorbed by, by your sample. Okay, so you've got this cobalt-57 that is hanging out as cobalt-57 for about a year, then decays into iron via electron capture, and then very almost instantaneously emits a gamma ray. And that's important because, you know, if, you're, if your transition had a lifetime of 272 days, then, you know, <laughs> your line width at that point is... Uh, 
you know, forget nano electron volts. Yeah. <laughs> Zepto yes. electron volts or something. So, um, okay. So nanoseconds, or in this case for iron 57, 100 nanoseconds ish corresponds to about nine nano electron volts. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So if you have a cobalt 57 source, uh, whatever its environment is, is going to eventually emit that 14.4 kilo electron volt gamma ray with a very, very, very narrow bandwidth. And so in theory, your sample, which contains iron 57, should be able to absorb that because it should be on resonance with it, right? Mm-hmm. We're not really thinking about stoke shifts and vibronic transitions, the way that throw things off between absorption and emission uh, yeah. profiles and visible spectroscopy, you can have Stokes and anti-Stokes shifts, which we can talk about when we get to nuclear resonant inelastic X-ray scattering. But for now, they should be perfectly on resonance. And so the only way that they wouldn't be on resonance is if you have something in the environment around the nucleus, so its electron configuration or you know neighboring atoms that it's bonded with, that shifts it to a slightly different frequency than the chemical environment of the iron in your source. Okay. So fortunately for us, those shifts are similarly very, very small, but large enough often to pull your absorption line out uh, completely out of overlapping with, with your source or something else that might be in your sample. And so you can actually spectrally resolve all these different lines. And the way you do it is through the Doppler shift. Okay. So you've got your cobalt 57, sitting on basically a little speaker cone that just vibrates, you know, oscillates back and forth really fast. And at any given time, you can correlate the velocity of your source with the counts that you get on your detector that are placed after your sample. And so then by doing that for every possible velocity as you accelerate your speaker cone forward and backward, you can put together a spectrum that you frequency or energy resolved just via the Doppler shift. And in the case of nearly all Mossbauer spectra, the range of velocities that you need to access is usually at most 10, maybe 20, if you're really pushing it, 30 millimeters per second. So velocities that are not that unreasonable. Yeah, And that's because... These line widths are so small, these shifts are so small. And so mm. even though the energy of the transition is such such a high energy, you can actually frequency resolve it in probably the simplest possible way to do a spectroscopy experiment, which is pretty cool. That is really cool. Do you have like a, a graphic or like an animation of this kind of setup that we could put up on the webpage? Yeah, yeah, I... I don't really have like a good cartoon of my own that I made, but I'm sure I could find a good one. Okay. You know, I'd offer to take a video of mine, but like really the vibration, like the distance that it travels is like so small that it doesn't, you can't really like pick it up well in a video. Oh yeah. (laughs) So actually tell us about, about the setup that you made, because I think that's a really good opportunity to get you a little off script. So, um, cause I, I, I've never seen it and I don't know anything about it. So, I mean, I, I can't take any credit for actually making this thing. So I, I, I just bought a spectrometer from this company called Seaco based out of Minneapolis. And it's really just this one guy who, who makes these spectrometers. Um, but yeah, really the, the entire thing is just this, this really well calibrated speaker cone, Mm -hmm. some electronics to interface with the computer. So it, it can know what the velocity is at any given time and then 20 30 centimeters further down we have a gas counter so you know it's uh, this this chamber that's filled with a gas when the gas absorbs the gamma radiation that's transmitted through uh, your sample uh, you ionize the gas and then you can measure that as, as a current right so uh, it just measures the the gamma rays that are incident into the detector at any given time correlates that with the velocity of, of the source. And you just let it count for, 
you know, if you've got a very concentrated sample, uh, maybe you can have a good spectrum in an hour. Uh, if you have a really, really dilute sample or you've got a sample that is it has a very, very soft lattice, uh, it could take weeks or even months to get a spectrum. Mm. Oh, my gosh. But, I mean, it's it's like the lowest effort measurement you can do. The data analysis can be hairy, but, like, you you literally just stick your thing in and wait a month. So, the, the, <laughs> um, the, your description of this experiment keeps keeps calling to mind, like, a couple of, of other experiments for me. And one of them is the tar drop experiment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then Not quite as painful. <laughs> Um, but then the other one I don't actually know the name of this experiment but again what's an episode of the Geppert Mayer Gage if I don't shout out uh, the the 804 open courseware videos (laughs) 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 but in in one of uh, those videos where Alan Adams is describing like the different elaborations on the Stern-Gerlach like experiments with photons Mm -hmm. Um, he's talking about somebody that like I, I don't even think it was like actually uh, a single photon source. I think it was like just a, an ordinary light source that was like blocked by such an effective filter <laughs> that like a photon managed to like get through the filter like once every like 40 days or something like that. Oh <laughs> and so like every 40 days, you know, like a photon would go through. And so you could like, slowly slowly collect these like polarization statistics with the with the the crossed polarizers and still see that like you know it still worked out exactly the same way (laughs) um so anyway it just takes way longer (laughs) it just takes way longer yeah i mean like the right now my sources right now are, are not very hot anymore they're all they're both a couple years old at this point so they're not not at their peak performance. Mm. Um, but yeah. even then, you know, after maybe two weeks or so of measurement, I'm over a billion counts. Um, mm. So, you know, it's it, it's not quite as bad as one photon every 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was like day. I mean, 40. Sorry, oh, four, like, yeah, sorry, 40 days. Tens yeah, of, it so. was like tens of days. It wasn't years. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to talk about... Uh, nuclear forward scattering because it is kind of it does kind of remind me in a lot of ways of that but i at some point i want to come back to uh nuclear brag diffraction just because i think it's so cool and kind of insane okay all right so nuclear forward scattering which i mentioned it's basically time domain mossbauer spectroscopy okay so you've got in conventional mossbauer spectroscopy you're doing or your frequency resolving your signal through the doppler shift like I just described nuclear forward scattering, however, is performed by adding a nucleus specific high resolution monochromator, uh, which gets you down not to nano electron volts, but about one milli electron volt. Okay. And so you have that after your conventional monochromator. And the whole point of this is just to try to maximize the ratio of resonant to non-resonant photons you have in your beam. Okay. So it, it, it really doesn't matter how broad your beam is in terms of how many photons are resonant with your transition. But the way nuclear forward scattering works is, so the beam interacts with the sample. You can do this in either normal or grazing incidence. And then all of the photons are collected in the forward direction. And so that includes the what are called the prompt photons. So these are just like the elastically scattered photons that are coming with the beam but then also the delayed photons and so this is essentially you know the the nuclear emission that you're getting from exciting this nuclear state Mm -hmm. and so your detector is basically it's overwhelmed with signal from the prompt scatter uh, because that's you know basically your entire beam and it's going to be many, many, many orders of magnitude more photons than the delayed uh, photons that you count. And so that's why you want to monochromatize it as much as possible. But at a certain point, there, there's just not much you can do. So you set your detector so that you're getting, you know, less than one photon per X-ray pulse on average. And then 
every so often one of the x-ray pulses that comes in, instead of counting a prompt count or uh, detecting a prompt count, you'll detect a delayed count. And you Hmm. measure when that photon arrives as a function of time. And then you just keep doing this. And again, this can be hours to days. You, You keep doing it until you basically build up a histogram, right? You've got, let's say half a nanosecond temporal resolution on your detector. And so you've got these half nanosecond bins. You build up a histogram to see when all these photons are coming out. Now, if you just have a single line in the frequency domain, then obviously your time domain spectrum is not going to look that interesting. But if you have multiple lines, then you can get interference in the time domain and you get these quantum beating signals. Mm. And so that's, you know, I've done measurements where you can get a spectrum with sufficiently good resolution in half an hour. But I did another measurement where, you know, we had to count for, I think we did like 17 hours for a single spectrum, just because our count rate was about half a photon per second, right? Like a photon every two seconds. Okay. And the other brutal thing about this is because, so, so to get, milli-electron volt resolution on your monochromatized beam, that involves stabilizing your crystal angles. Well, okay, it's it's like six-pass monochromator. So yeah, you're stabilizing your crystal angles to some absurd tolerance, right? And so inevitably, it drifts over time. It drifts such that even uh, if you have the X-ray hutch completely closed, just the cooling and heating of the room that's coming from the diurnal cycle outdoors, right? The sun, like heating the ground and then that cooling at night, that's enough to throw it off. And so you have to constantly keep chasing your monochromator to keep it on resonance with your nuclear transition. Because even though one milli EV is way broader than the nano electron volt of your transition, your monochromator drifts by easily one milli EV in half an hour or so. And so for 17 hours, you're just patiently counting photons and, (laughs) you know, occasionally adjusting some angles to make sure you're still in resonance. So it's it's also a pretty tedious thing in that way. But the other cool thing is it's a background-free measurement, right? So these, once your X-ray pulse is gone, there's no way that you're going to, have some stray hard X-ray slash gamma ray, whatever you want to call it, uh, photon hit your detector 50 nanoseconds later. That photon can only come from the nucleus. And so it's a totally background-free measurement, Mm. uh, which is really cool. Yeah. So the only noise in your spectrum is just the noise based on the limit of your statistics because of, you know, how long you were able to measure. Yeah. So that's nuclear forward scattering, which is pretty cool. Is nuclear bra- yeah, so nuclear Bragg diffraction is basically using a synchrotron in place of a radioisotope. And so if you have the same nucleus as your absorber and you have a crystal of you know some material that contains that nucleus, you can find a reflective or you can find a crystal face or a facet, I guess, where you have no electronic reflectivity, right? So you're not going to get any reflectivity through interaction of your hard X-ray electric field with the electrons. Okay. Uh, At that angle, it'll, you know, just all be destructive interference across the bandwidth of your beam, but you will be at the Bragg angle for nuclear reflect, uh, nuclear reflection. So it literally is just like, you know, in the same way we're used to thinking about mirrors working Mm -hmm. for visible light, it's the same thing except the nucleus, which (laughs) I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around that one. But it's so cool because then, yeah, you come in with a a beam that's one electron volt and you get out a beam that's one nano electron volt. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah, that's sweet. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, if you have that, then you can just uh, put your sample on a velocity transducer and Doppler shift your sample relative to the source and and measure it that way. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
other thing we should probably talk about for our chemistry-minded friends is what do you learn from these spectra? Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we should have led with this. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, yeah, I guess we're, we are talking about light matter interaction, but um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. So what do you learn? In a lot of ways, Mossbauer spectroscopy or nuclear forward scattering or synchrotron radiation Mossbauer, however, whatever you want to do, if you're measuring the resonant absorption spectrum of a nucleus in your sample, you get out essentially three parameters for each uh, signal in your spectrum, right? You might have multiple different species, and so those will all give you a different spectrum. But for each species, you have three parameters that you measure. So one is the isomer shift, (laughs) and this is very analogous to like a chemical shift in NMR. Okay. And so, you know, it's, it's... just, you know, essentially, if you're doing a radioisotope measurement, it's just saying how far off from the emission energy of your source is the absorption energy yeah. of your sample, right? And so so that's just a number that tells you how far shifted you are. And that is correlated or, or it's related to um, the electron configuration. And so it's actually directly related to the... Um, electron density in the nucleus, right? Okay, sure. And so usually that is um, that can be correlated with uh, oxidation state and it it depends on what nucleus, what the what the properties of the nucleus are, whether higher oxidation state means higher isomer shift or lower isomer mm-hmm. shift. And sometimes you can also correlate it with spin state as well. Um, okay. So iron 57 is, is a pretty good example of that. Okay, so that's one thing, certainly for, for fingerprinting too, you know, if, if you know what the isomer shift for various things is, then you can figure out whether it's in your sample or not. Uh, the next thing is the quadrupole splitting. So this is a hyperfine interaction. Uh, it's the splitting of your nuclear transition due to the electric field gradient generated by the electrons around the nucleus. Okay. And so... This often is related to the nuclear geometry, and in the case of like transition metal complexes, it can be related to things like covalency. Uh, but it's also something that, like the isomer shift, you can actually get really, really good prediction of using various electronic structure theories. Uh, DFT even is very, very successful, uh, even for open shell systems, surprisingly, yeah. uh, for predicting... Uh, isomer shifts and quadrupole splittings. Okay. Because, you know, if you have your electron density, you can easily calculate the electric field gradient at the center of, of your atom, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that manifests just as, as a splitting into two different peaks. So you get a doublet uh, from a singlet. And so, you know, other than in cases of very, very rigorous symmetry, you're going to have some degree of quadrupole splitting. But Many in many cases, a magnitude of that splitting is less than the natural line width of your transition, and so okay. you just don't resolve it. Right. But of course, if you if you have your peak and you find that it doesn't fit very well to a Lorentzian, and you're very careful about the fact that you're not uh, artificially broadening your peak uh, because your sample uh, is too thick, then you could fit it to a quadrupole split doublet, even though it it looks like a singlet. And then finally, if your uh, if your sample has magnetic properties, so you know if it's ferromagnetic, antiferromagnetic, whatever its magnetic ordering is, this can result in another hyperfine splitting called the magnetic hyperfine splitting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Surprising, I guess. And so <laughs> this it can tell you about the magnetic ordering of your sample. But the other cool thing is, you know, if you can do temperature dependent Mossbauer, then you can cool your sample. And if, yeah, if your um, paramagnetic ordering is, um, or sorry, paramagnetic relaxation is faster than the relaxation of your nuclear excited state, then you can't resolve the splitting. But if it's slower, then you can resolve these individual transitions. And so then you can also figure out what 
magnetic relaxation rates and things like that are if you can do a temperature dependent measurement. Yeah, so that's all the information you can get from, I mean, these are all nuclear transitions, but this is basically, you know, the electronic information that you get out of this nuclear spectroscopy. Yeah. The, the other main thing that nuclear resonance is used for in chemistry is vibrational, uh, vibrational spectroscopy. So to complement conventional infrared and Raman spectroscopies, you can, if you have mass power active nucleus, you can do what's called nuclear resonant inelastic X-ray scattering, or NRICS, also sometimes called nuclear resonance vibrational spectroscopy, or nervous. <laughs> and so the way this making works, me nervous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the way this works is you've got your one milli electron volt monochromatized beam, and you can scan it. Uh, you can scan your monochromator about that transition. You know, maybe plus or minus 100 milli electron volts above and below the transition of the nucleus. And what you get there uh, is you can resolve phonon-assisted nuclear absorption. Okay. okay. So in other words, yeah. uh, if you have less energy in your incident X-ray beam from the synchrotron, then you need to be on resonance with the nuclear transition. You can, you borrow, can from the borrow the energy from an occupied phonon and so you get uh, your anti-stokes wing that yeah. way. And then if you're a little higher in energy, you can deposit it into a phonon and yes. get your stokes, stokes wing that way. Gotcha. And then by comparing your stokes and anti-stokes wings about uh, your resonance peak, you can use detailed balance to figure out the vibrational density of states of the material. Well, I should say the partial vibrational density of states of the material, because now you're only sensitive to phonons that involve displacement of your mass power active nucleus, right? Mm -hmm. And so for small molecules, and this has been really helpful for like iron porphyrins, um, iron metalloproteins, or I guess I should say, yeah, proteins with iron containing cofactors. This can be really, really powerful because, you know, if you were to do Raman or FTIR on a protein, obviously you're just going to get a whole bunch of noise or just a big blob of nonsense, right? But now you can exclusively do the spectroscopy, the vibrational spectroscopy on the iron containing part of the molecule in its native environment. Yeah. You don't have to extract it and then hope that, you know, it's still representative of that structure when it's in the protein. You leave it in the protein and you're just probing yeah. uh, the vibrational structure of that. And also, yeah, even for small molecules, it can be really helpful if you just have a ton of normal nodes. It can help with assignment because the selection rules are such that, you know, both IR and Raman allowed transitions appear in the nervous spectrum as long as they involve displacement of the, yes. of the metal. And so with all of those three together, you can really start assigning your vibrational spectrum more, more fully. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. I had no idea about any of this. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's super niche. You know, there there's only five synchrotrons in the world uh, where you can do this. Although there's two more that are that are coming online, uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> it's coming to a light source near you. <laughs> <laughs> coming to a light source near you if you live in Siberia, or I'm not sure where the uh, HTPS in China is. There's still plenty more to talk about with nuclear resonance. They're all so, Yeah, maybe we'll revisit this in a future episode. Maybe with a nuclear physicist. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's wrap it up. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Geppert Mayer Gage. What are we gonna I, I I always ask what are we gonna do next, and we haven't discussed it, so it never goes anywhere. So I won't ask that, actually. Well, I th I really do want to have Justin uh, Karam back on. Did I say his name right? Karam. Karam, motherfucker. <laughs>
<laughs> Justin Karam back on. I've just always known him as Justin, you know, yeah. my whole life. Yeah. He's always been just Justin to me. Just Justin. Just Justin. <laughs> No, no, I'm taking a hard stance against that because I'm trying to establish myself mononymically and I can't have other people okay. trying to encroach on that territory. It, it, it is it is horrible that I can't remember how to pronounce. Well, the problem is you just psych yourself out and then second and third and fourth guess yourself yeah. because of the issue a certain person had for five years. This is what happened. So, so this has happened to me on a number of different things. We don't need to go into all of them, but one of them is the word ramekin. <laughs> Wait, do you say it that way? I don't even know how you say it anymore. Ramekin. <laughs> yeah. Ramekin. Ramekin. I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've had a hard time with that one for a long time. I mean, and, I guess maybe I don't have a problem with it because I have no idea how to spell it. Yeah. Um, it's R-A-M-E-K-I-N, I think. Yeah, that's a confusing word if you look at it. But yeah. I think I've only just like heard Food Network people t- say it, so <laughs> it's never yeah. been a problem. <laughs> and, um, and so Jessica would sort of like mispronounce it as a joke in front of me and, <laughs> and be like, wait, is it the wrong way or the right way to say it? And now it's, yeah. And now it's, it's just so jumbled in my head. <laughs> um, so Justin's last name is like that. We can cut yeah. this out too. Yeah, why it's not? our secret. <laughs> but yeah, we should have Justin back on to hold Set him accountable on. for his comments <laughs> on Kanye West. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we we owe him that much. He 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 deserves to <laughs> set the record straight. <laughs> I don't think any of us could have seen how awful that was going to turn out. Um, when we recorded three years ago. <laughs> yeah. What the hell happened to Kanye? Yeah. We can ask Justin, see what he thinks. Yeah. But he was right about Elon Musk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I definitely do want to catch up with you about this Vanderpump Rules controversy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You'll, you'll see why. So I'm just going to give you, like, I'm going to try to give you a really brief summary and i just want you to interject with any lines that just sort of feel right to say at the time (laughs) so this story involves two toms once upon a time once upon a time there were two toms there were two toms yeah but are they also two jerks yes they are (laughs) oh my god and so tom and tom started a business together in season seven (laughs) Okay. So Tom and Tom have had Club Tom Tom since seven. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Tom and, and Tom. wearing $45 1983 White Sox hats? They 100% would, except for one of the Toms always represents St. Louis. So mm. I guess Cardinals. Uh, okay. I, I don't even know if he wears Cardinals hats, but he really usually just represents St. Louis. Because mm-hmm. he's from there, and the other other Tom is actually from Florida. But anyway, these two Toms are known uh, cheaters, <laughs> known Lotharios, <laughs> right? And uh, <laughs> and would they slap each other on the back about what it was they'd do? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. They knew, they knew. <laughs> so, I think like the majority of the viewership of Vanderpump rules um, has somehow been able to be in denial about one of the Tom's Tom Sandoval's uh, wayward ways for <laughs> like about a decade. So he, when the show started, he was in a relationship with one of the cast members and in like season three or season four, they finally broke up and he, started a relationship with a new, uh, like a, a person who was sort of like a side, you know, a side character that mm-hmm. then became like more fully integrated in the show once they started their relationship. And it seemed pretty, pretty clear that there was infidelity before that, <laughs> that relationship started. But once okay. they got together, it was sort of like everybody was like, oh, Tom and Ariana are like meant to be together. And like, this is the, this is the, they're forming this life 
partnership. But but this the the huge news that broke was that Tom has been cheating on Ariana for like the past seven months with somebody that was dating another cast member that the other Tom had been like rumored to be hooking up with. And so then like, I guess the big like face crack is like, everybody was like, Oh, the other Tom who was recently divorced is like hooking up with this other character, Raquel, whose name isn't actually Raquel. It's actually Rachel, but we have all been led to believe that her name is Raquel. Um, and then like, but it seems now highly likely that the other Tom was sort of just taking all this heat as like a diversion for the real oh. infidelity between Tom, who's still in a relationship in this character, Raquel. So like, anyway, um, yeah, the, the whole viewership of this show has just been like talking about this endlessly for, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll admit, I, I kind of lost the. Yeah, it's too complicated. I just, <laughs> I just, I was, you know, I, I started thinking this thing that like I, I should at least tell you about the two Toms. Yeah. Or yeah. Two jerks, and then when I, when I realized that, like, you know, essentially they turned their like best friendship into a brand in season seven, and so I just mm-hmm. was really entertained by like the best friend since seven part. <laughs> Well, I'm looking at this photo of the two of them with Lisa Vanderpump, and I'd never seen her before, but I must say, she has gorgeous red-brown hair. Yes, she does. (laughs) Does she ever dye it black? Um, Behind your back. Behind your back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing the answer is no. No. She that, has, that seems like she has pretty consistent hair color throughout the entire series. In fact, okay, yeah, well, there there is a Peter who is an integral part of the show. Well, he he's like he's he's a stalwart in the show. He's not integral, but he's a stalwart in the show. So, but he's not he's uh, not departed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> oh. Well, I'm glad. glad. Glad we cleared that up. I'm glad we cleared that up too. I hope everybody who's listening appreciates that we are heavily referencing the wayward granddaughter by the fiery furnaces. One of the best songs ever written in history. Once upon a time, there were two Kevins. You mean two jerks. Truly one of the best hours of music ever recorded. It's such a oh, absolutely. phenomenal album. Like we reviewed that back when we did didn't we review it as an ice classic when we used to do yeah. our radio show? Yeah, we did a whole episode just on yeah. reversing my choir and talked about it for like two hours. Straight. Yeah. And like at that time, I had, you had spent a lot of time with that album by that time. And I had spent probably a year ish with it. Right. And I was just so blown away and in love with that album at that time. And, th- and then with the, this is at least 10 years later. <laughs> And yeah. that album still blows my mind. It's so amazing. Yeah, it's it's definitely one that uh, only gets better with age. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing the first time you hear it, and infinitely quotable. Um, some really, really exciting moments. Some really heart wrenching moments. Yeah. Some really confusing moments. Um, just beautiful sound design. I mean, yeah. What else can you say? Um, yeah, I, I it's definitely undoubtedly the album that I quote the most, for yeah. sure. <laughs> um, but it also, I guess, has probably one of the longest and densest lyric sheets yes. on the album. <laughs> uh, yeah, so if you're not familiar and aren't sure what to think, it's uh, this is The Fiery Furnaces, um, I guess technically only their third album if you don't count ep as an album but it really is so i guess it's like their fourth album which they recorded with their grandmother only a couple years before she died Mm -hmm. and she was a lifelong choir director in chicago and the whole album is just this very um you know, if you try to make too much sense of the chronology, it's very confusing. But if you're willing to just let it take you where it wants, then it's not a problem because it's basically a mixture of 
uh, true stories of her childhood uh, through young adulthood, uh, made up stories uh, about fictional characters who are the same age at different times throughout her life, uh, some contemporary stories about young women facing uh, similar challenges, and then a little bit of present day mixed in and from her perspective. And yeah, it's just really, really stunning. And it's more spoken word than sung, but still obviously plenty of singing and just, yeah, really phenomenal. So yeah. go check it out if you haven't heard it before, but at the very least, listen to The Wayward Granddaughter. Yeah. It'll only set you back six and a half minutes of your life. <laughs> and if you've ever lived in the Chicago area or some oh, kind yeah. of the, I, I had, so it, it really spoke to me as someone living in Chicago at the time that I heard it. But then also since I lived in Davenport for a couple of years mm-hmm. and Dav- Davenport, Iowa is name checked uh, with, with like authenticity. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so remarkable. Like, it's not just like, Oh, the, I mean, you know, there, there is this authenticity of, of these recollections because they are situated in places and times that are at least historically plausible, if not accurate. So. Mm-hmm. I, uh, J- John's mom sent us a photo of her and her friends walking across uh, the new bridge that oh. spans uh, between the Quad Cities. I did not know there was a new bridge. Yeah, yeah, it just opened... Um, less than a year ago, I, I don't remember exactly when it was, but uh, the day, I guess, before they opened it to traffic, like car traffic, they opened it up to pedestrian traffic. So you could mm. just walk across the river. And so yeah, a ton of people went just because that's like a fun thing to do. And if, if you were so inclined, you could have used it that day to walk across the river to Greek school. Yes. Presumably on a fine fall day. I can't remember exactly when it was, but yeah. All right. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you later, Jay. All right. Take it easy.